Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Um, after a couple of weeks off, we're back and it's in the middle round of the Heineken Cup. And uh, while it was a four out of four weekend for the Irish, five out of the seven teams in the Gallagher Premiership uh, tasted bitter defeat this weekend. And although uh, one of them had to lose because one of them was playing, uh, Exeter were playing Gloucester, um, only Saracens came out uh, with, a, with a really handsome and healthy result. The rest of them, Wasps look kind of sad sack. Leicester scored a few tries, but were clutching at straws to try and keep up with that racing team. Overall, it doesn't paint a pretty picture for the health of the Premiership. It, it, it doesn't, and it wasn't uh, that it was a weekend out of keeping with the rest of the season and that it was a blip. And uh, you go back to 2015 when the European Champions Cup was newly inaugurated um, and now it's got a flashy star decal coming through Heineken Heineken have been the big winners um, out of what was the Heineken Cup is now still the Heineken Cup Um, I mean anyway we talked back or there was a lot of discussion back then we didn't partake in it about how it was all going to be England and France England France hegemony and you know it wasn't completely wrong because Sarri's and Toulon dominated between them but um, they weren't typical particularly of the English clubs. So Bath and Wasps are at the bottom. Bath and Wasps are gone. Um, Exeter at the bottom of Pool 2. Leicester are on their way out. Saracens are doing very well. Uh, and uh, Newcastle are second. But, I mean, it's, it's a pool they could finish last in mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, Toulon or Montpellier are the two teams behind them. So that won't necessarily earn and sweetie for Newcastle and Edinburgh have three points on them even though Edinburgh's uh, league form is pretty poor so all the English teams are doing poorly no sorry Saracens are doing well Gloucester are a bit of a surprise Gloucester are a bit of a surprise yeah yeah and they're as, as a bunch I suppose you'd argue underperforming and the the premiership are gonna sell a 30% stake apparently, to CVC, who are a private equity firm. Uh, this was floated back in September, and it was it was a 50% stake then. So uh, I don't know what season CVC are looking at, but the Premiership Clubs... The Premiership Clubs have negotiated extremely well over the past uh, decade and a half. Um, and it it's difficult to know how they've quite how they've managed to do it as well as they they don't make any money mm-hmm. the rugby isn't that strong um they are probably go you know they're pretty playing to a kind of a, a declining market mm. audiences aren't aren't huge um because you know they're only on satellite you know they they haven't uh, england went out in the first round of, of their own World Cup, which might have been hoped to give the sport a, a lot of prominence. And yet, they're going to get themselves this deal. And they've negotiated deal after deal uh, with your FU where, where they've come out the winners. They've done better. Um, and now they're, they're negotiating this deal with a private equity house. And you know, you'd have to sort of think that it's rare that a private equity house doesn't come out better. When you say they've negotiated a deal with the RFU, this is like the support that the RFU gives to the clubs. Is that what? This is, yeah. So this is the support that the RFU gives the clubs and it's, it's to do with access to international players and um, it's to do with what the, the salary cap is that the English teams can pay. And I think crucially, talking about the European Cup, it's to do with who's able to negotiate what TV rights. Mm -hmm. So the last deal 
um, that was negotiated. The English teams were able to, uh, they were able to do their own broadcast rights. And they got that. And they were delighted with it. I mean, McCaffrey was delighted with it. I, I don't know if the RFU exactly understood uh, what they were giving away. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm saying that about the last deal. I think this was the 2007 deal. And they probably had an existing contract. But when that TV contract ran out under the 2007 deal, they would then be able to renegotiate their own. So they basically got into bed with BT Sports and BT Sports are now the sole broadcaster of the of the European Cup. Mm-hmm. Um, so BT Sports have sunk, have sunk sky. So like BT have their own sort of interests in this and that they want to get uh, the quadruple play. I mean, they want to get all the data that goes into people's phones that goes into their smart TVs, streaming down their pipes and charging people for it. Mm-hmm. And they don't want Sky to do that. And live sports is one of the ways they can do it. And rugby is one of the live sports that they can uh, they can make this play. So is rugby worth that much to, uh, to BT? Well, they've obviously put a number on it and they've paid English rugby this much going forward. And then the, the private equity guys are looking at there's this much cash coming into the game. And historically, they will take it out. Mm-hmm. This isn't unique to CBC. This is this is the way that every private equity house runs: is that you make it more efficient, is the, the vernacular, and then you take the cash out. So, just to clarify for me, someone who's not au fait with the uh, behaviour of a private equity firm, the Premiership Gallagher Premiership is a company, yeah, like the Premier League, yeah. Uh, and it's made up of the members of the Premiership. Yeah, is that and, right? And one other club. And one other club. Yeah, so Which 13, 13 clubs. Northern Irish. Irish. Yeah. And the clubs are all agreed that they will sell thirty percent of this business to uh, a private company. Well, I I, I don't think the the ink has dried, so to speak, but. That's that's my understanding. Yeah. yeah, that's so. This two hundred quid would this two hundred million would go into the Premiership for them to do with as they please in return for a thirty percent stake. Uh, and there's probably some sort of contractual negotiations about what input the the CVC guys would have. So would it be like the marketing of the game? Uh, would they do negotiation with the TV companies? Would they do negotiation with the RFU? Maybe maybe that qualifies as marketing. Um, would they do contract negotiations with players, and what would these contracts look like? Um, would it preclude guys from training with England? Would it make release payments a bigger? You know, is it almost like playing a transfer mm-hmm. for guys to be released to England? Um, and at the same time, the RFU are losing money. So there are a few constantly at each other's throats. Uh, Francis Barron was the guy who stayed there the longest time of, of anybody that I'm aware of. He was, he was the chief exec for 10 years. He wrote an open letter um, giving out about financial mismanagement on the back of the redundancies. There are a few announced 50 redundancies. They announced a 31 million loss. They announced... Uh, pretty much the, the same overspend they spent. They're meant to spend 53 million on redeveloping the Twickenham East stand. They ended up spending 80 million. Um, Baron gave out about this. And Didn't the, then the chief exec... Yeah, he resigned. Resigned. And then the RFU voted. And another guy, Catermull, who had been the, the chairman of the RFU for a, a period when Baron was there, they each had their privilege revoked by members of council. So anyway, the RFU are giving uh, $220 million to the Premiership clubs over the course of the next eight years. That's another part of the cash flow. So it's basically BT and the RFU bankroll, English professional rugby, the, the English Premiership clubs. Uh, and the guy who negotiated the deal on behalf of the RFU as their chief exec is now the chairman of Premiership rugby. Yeah, and that $220 million, is it fair to categorise that as release payments for international English internationals 
um, who are contracted to Premiership clubs to play for England. Is that a fair way to describe that, or am I simplifying it too much? Um, that I that that certainly is one of the that certainly is one of the features, and I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, it's pretty much it's it's for access to players. I mean, mm. that's what that's what the RFU want. That's what the RFU want. So this is this is the vehicle for the RFU to bankroll a squad of professional English players who can play for England. Yeah, um, and that's their call. And it, it's it's probably something that's been in their game for so long, has been in the professional game, but. I just look at it and I go, where's where's the money going? Because it doesn't need to be benefiting English rugby. Yeah. I remember researching this at one stage and I don't have the figures in front of me, but I remember looking at um, Ben Teo in particular because he, he spent two years in Leinster and his second year, he won Leinster Player of the Year and then he moved from Leinster to Worcester Warriors who were... And, and still are, you know, a scrabbling bottom of the table English club who mm. aren't ever going to, well, haven't, haven't challenged for trophies since he's been there. And Theo was very honest about why he moved there, that he was a professional rugby player and they offered him a good bit of money. And in doing, in moving to Worcester, he became available to play for England and he was quickly picked for England. England have an extremely generous... Um, uh, pay for play, you know, for their if you're selected in an international match day squad and get on the pitch. I think it's something. It's it's, it's twenty five thousand sterling yeah, per match. Yeah, it's a huge figure, and then on the back of Tio's performances, a lot of them, you know, either off the bench, most the majority of them off the bench. He also got selected for the Lions, which again was another very significant payday. I think. Playing for the Lions and being involved in that, uh, you know, successful, albeit a drawn tour, I think you earn something like sixty-five thousand on that. So between his huge uh, Worcester payday and his English appearance money and his Lions tour, he was he earns just a huge amount of money in in one year, you know, and it was. It totally validated his decision to move from a, a club which had been extremely successful in the recent past and was on the up again in Leinster to move to play professionally and to earn a load of money in one year. I think I think I calculated that in his one year between his Worcester salary, his English performance money and his Lions tour here and something like 800 grand in one year. And it's, it's difficult to see how they all knit together, mm. um, how one doesn't compromise the other. I mean, the, the Lions is, is a Sky product, really. I mean, the Lions was a, was a great product for Sky back in 1997 when there was nothing else on the TV yeah. at the time. It was on in June. It's not a European Championships year. It's not a World Cup. It happened to be in South Africa, so it was at really good broadcasting times. And then because it was in South Africa, they had to play it at a certain time of day. I think it's like five o'clock South African time, which is four o'clock over here. Um, because it had to be, that was the law. It was the national yeah. law. Like the, those games had to be broadcast uh, domestically in South Africa and played at a certain time. Um, and then they released the, the DVD sort of, which just happened to be circumstance. And it became a huge brand for... Sky ever since, mm. um, who are rivals of BT. So the Lions is getting squeezed because the Premiership want to change their season. Um, and you, it's all the same guys appearing the same. So John Spencer was manager of the last Lions tour and was a director of that company, England mm-hmm. Ruby Limited, um, and made his recommendations to the clubs and the RFU when he came back and said, oh, the Lions need more time, you know, should we move the season? The next time there's a Lions tour on to allow us more time to prepare, and the opposite has happened. But it's a big, it's a big payday for the Southern Hemisphere nations that host it. It's a, it's a, it's a big branding thing for Sky, who arrives at BT. And you just look at it and you go, man, the game's been carved up and... There's a few winners out of it, like Ben Teo's done. <laughs> and yeah. who could be grudge? Yeah, I don't... I, who I, could be grudge Ben Teo or, or anyone like him? But 
it doesn't it doesn't hang together well, uh, and it, it it doesn't seem to benefit English rugby. No, and it's um, you know, and, and one of the teams who have been uh, over the last four years have been the most, I think, both by makeup of their team and also by sort of an overall perception, the most English of teams would have been Exeter, um, and they played Gloucester there on Saturday early afternoon and just as a sort of I've rarely seen Exeter play as as poorly and look as disjointed and flat Um, Rob Baxter gave a very good interview after it saying it's difficult to know whether they've convinced themselves that they have to play differently in Europe in order to be successful but there was a lot of loose thinking out there and you know Europe is, a, is, is where more, I think it's where BT were hoping to make a lot of their, their games at the, by broadcasting this marquee tournament and it's not really paying off for them in terms of how it portrays their other competition to premiership yeah, and they, they haven't, because the tournament was split um, over two channels, I think people just decided to get neither channel. So you might have you might have got Sky because you were guaranteed to get, and it just meant that you could watch the matches at home and you'd have all the matches. And Sky had done a great job of branding the, the Heineken Cup over the 15 years uh, and they'd introduced what were new... Uh, techniques at the time and that people got accustomed to their commentators and to their punditry and to their roundup show um, but sure if you don't know what channel your team is going to go on why would you pay double the money for the uncertainty so mm. people you just I didn't bother I mean um, and I think with I, again I, I went back to 2001 because I was curious where the money was gone and I was I was there. <laughs> like, who's benefiting from this? Like, who, who's who's getting the cash? And it it can only be South Sea Islanders and uh, South Africans broadly, because Sterling has gone down. So, for as much as this, and this 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 is this is kind of Brexit written small. It's just classically. It's like a case study of you've got this small league all things told that has grand plans and you can say great belief or hubris depending on how you want to paint it mm. um about becoming you, you know the, the the professional league the best league in the world but they're hobbled by sterling sterling was hundred thousand sterling back in 2001 when english rugby was was set up before england won the mm-hmm. world cup uh, would have bought you uh, $275,000 Aussie dollars. Now it buys you $175,000 Aussie dollars. It would have bought you 342000 Kiwi dollars. Now it buys you $185,000. So when you're talking about oh, how much do the guys get paid who might be all blacks and you know bringing up Sopawanga on, on massive money, you have to pay a massive sterling because it doesn't go as far back in New Zealand. Mm. And he's got negotiating power. And you're going, well, we can't really attract any of the All Blacks because they want to be All Blacks. And it's not worth their time. Like, it's not worth 350 grand anymore. It's worth... And, like, sterling's got weaker in yeah. that week. It's worth 175,000. Like, it's almost halved against the Kiwi dollar, which is a shocking indictment of, of Britain as, as an economy. And the only one that it's really kept pace with and slightly surpassed is the Rand. And South Africa is not a poster boy. Yeah, it's not something you want to benchmark yourself against. No. So th- this, is, this is where you get your best players from. Um, is, are, the, are the Sands our nations? And um, the other thing as well, which we've, we've talked about before, is that. Um, when they got when the Premiership clubs got their their deal with BT, they were all loss making clubs. One of the first things they decided to do was was raise their salary cap and pay all their players more. 
you know and and realistically uh all, well not just realistically you know, factually like uh, i think 11 out of 12 premiership clubs lose money um and realistically the players don't generate the interest either through the stands or through television audiences to to earn the money that they're paid no i mean the again sorry well isn't the first thing that happens then when <clears throat> cvc inject 240 million pounds into the uh league that's owned by the clubs aren't they also going to take that money and spend it on wages for more players absolutely i think they will yeah of course they will <laughs> so what's the benefit of it they're like they're giving away that money that they're never going to get back. They're not investing it in infrastructure. They're investing it in turn and like their the brand. Yeah, the way you could argue it. I mean, I looked at the primary salary, the prim salary cap in two thousand and four, fifteen seasons ago, was one point eight million, and now it's seven million per season, excluding two marquee players. So if you're Saracens, you can play Billy Vanapola and Owen Farrell, whatever and then spend seven million on everybody else. So that's a nine and a half percent compound growth per annum in salary. Yeah. Which is wow. a great pay yeah, rise. I and wish. You, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, not bad. The miracle of compound interest. Uh, and it's it's difficult to justify. So from from one perspective, as 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 players, you have to thank the premiership you have to thank McCafferty yeah. but from who else's perspective it, it's just it's hard to see how it's benefited English rugby and over it's the an, past 15 it's years. not a popular thing to uh, say that players are, are paid too much like the players are the people who everyone in the game identifies with some people identify with the coaches not very many people identify with the referees and in general owners are disliked to loathed um, outside of their own club but the players take so much of the the money that goes into the club largely from uh, in the premiership largely f from the pockets of the owners they take so much of that um, and they work hard you know they Arguably play too many games. They play too many games. They play injured. You know, in 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 one degree, they earn everything they get. But in another degree, they just they don't generate the money to earn it. No, I'm sorry. I, I was saying twenty five earlier. That might be euro. I think it's twenty two thousand sterling is the payment to a player per test from the RFU. So, for a twenty three man squad, so for players only, it costs the RFU five hundred and six thousand sterling. Per game. Per game. And that's not win bonuses. And that's not, uh, well, that's, no, it's not win bonuses. It's, it's, it's what, it's yeah. just what they get paid. Um, so again, I don't know the deal. I don't know the ins and outs of, of how much more they get paid if they win. Um, I found quotes actually reading about it from, from Clive Woodward. Uh, when he resigned as England coach, uh, he said, control of players is everything. You can't control players through 12 directors of rugby, half of whom aren't English. I thought that was hilarious. I thought the xenophobia around it, and I also thought how quintessentially English is, like, blame the foreigners, even if the foreigners are in tracksuits and, like, you, you know, basically the same as you. Mm. So you blame them. Bloody paddies and dagos and diggers and whoever else. Yeah. And then say, this is why the team is broken up so quickly. This is his England team of 2003. It all caught <laughs> up with them. Because they were fucking ancient. <laughs> yeah, it all caught up with them, their family lives and their bodies. And you kind of go, this is more than a decade ago. Mm. Like, <laughs> it hasn't changed. It's, uh, and you wonder, like, who's, who's been driving this? And then you go, Richie was driving it. And Richie, Richie just hopped off, signed a massive deal with the clubs and then got into bed with them. Like, it's, yeah. oh, man, like. It, I think that's shocking. That's such a key point. I'm not sure. Um, I so Richie was the chief exec of yeah, the RFU. Yeah, I certainly didn't. I certainly that wasn't the first thing that I grasped, and I had to have it explained to me. And then I thought, geez, like the opposite of out of the frying pan and into the fire, off the couch and into the scratcher, basically. Yeah, you know? and you, you got to wonder as he as he had conflict of interest. Uh, negotiating the deal 
with his with his new paymasters, mm. uh, extremely generous deal. And you go back to it and you go, really, what is the negotiating power of the clubs? I would have said gamekeeper turned poacher as my flipped around metaphor. That's a better one. It's a better yeah. one. Yeah. Um. So, <clears throat> uh, to stumble into an unprepared question, uh, there's only two uh, free market rugby leagues in the world, and how. How does the French one uh, operate by comparison? The French deal... Uh, Be in sport? They've a, I think it was Canal. I think it's okay. Canal. Plus, uh, they have a four-year deal from the start of 1920. It covers the top two divisions in France. It's worth 388 million euro. So it's 97 million euro per season. Uh, now, that's, it's between... It's not just the top 14 clubs. It's the... Pro D2. Um, I looked at it in terms of what if it were just the top 14 clubs it would be nearly 7 million per season per club uh, with 40 players in a squad is 173,000 that that goes to each of those players yeah. if, if they're all paid the same now obviously they're not all paid the same Dan Carter's on this and you know Irabira Tua is, is on you know a fraction of that yeah. um, but he's still making a living from it and there's local money going in, but that's that's what the French deal is. The French and the the difference as well in uh, French rugby as opposed to English rugby, um, certainly the way I've seen it to a degree, experienced it is that French rugby does not come from the and so any sort of elite school system. French rugby is a more. A, a, it's certainly in the south, it's more the game of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't have the same elitist hang-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, you can get... Uh, I've referenced a few times, I was over in Cast for Cast Exeter, and the Cast is not a big town, it's not a particularly wealthy town, but a significant proportion of the town turns out like to fill the stadium, mm-hmm. to go bonkers, to fucking abuse the referee, you know, to welcome the players. Like, it's a really big proportion of of the the city comes out. Uh, it, it's it's more equivalent um, to Gaelic football than it would be, or 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 soccer yeah. in in England, you know. Um, and Bordeaux is another one I reference all the time. Bordeaux have a huge regular attendance. Like Bordeaux regularly have in, in European League rugby, they regularly have four in the top ten. They would certainly get over twenty eight thousand uh, for a lot of games. Sunday afternoon games, a lot of people turn out in the the dumbass. And uh, they're not a successful side. Yeah, it seems to me like there's also a larger cast of clubs uh, that rotate from. Um, the Pro-de-do. Pro-de-do into the, the top 14 Absolutely. top tours. Lyon and Stade Rochelle have been you know they go from being they get a they get a capital injection they get a coaching injection and depending how they spend the capital injection like La Rochelle got in uh, and, and quite a number of years ago Jason Eaton who was an outstanding guy and then Victor Vito who was sensational and they become, you know, European quarter finalists within sort of their first, maybe their second, maybe third year in, in the top 14. Mm. And Leon again in the competing, they're not competing at the absolute, you know, top end of things, but in the European Cup this year. Um, yeah, by comparison, the uh, English league, there's the 13 clubs who make up Premiership Rugby, which is London Irish, who are at the top of the, um, the second division in the yeah, UK, the championship, the championship, yeah. and then the next clubs are minnows by comparison. It seems, yeah, and they need to figure out a way to get thirteen into twelve or thirteen into fourteen. It seems to me because they're going to ring fence it. Well, that 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 was a, a, a contentious uh, bit of news last week where Nigel Melville, who's currently I think he's acting CEO of the RFU, is that he right? Is, yeah, he said that. Oh, this is, you know, this comes up every once every few years. We don't see that happening. 
And it's one of the things which English fans, when you read below the line comments, English fans are really against ring fence and the, the premiership. They believe that, like, the, the comment that came up often times was like, so what are, what are the other six clubs playing for after Christmas, if not to avoid relegation? Mm. You know, the bottom half of the league, what are they playing for if there's no relegation? You can see the argument because you look at the tables and you go, well, Saracens are just so much stronger. I'm, I'm only talking about the, the the European tables, but you just like Saracens are just miles stronger than everybody else in it. So if you didn't have relegation, you you just got fodder. Like what are what are all these guys? Well, I would, I would money suggest for? though that's what it looks like in the pro in the pro uh, fourteen as well. Like Leinster, Leinster looks so much stronger than everyone else. Mm. You know. When Leinster send over a mixed, you know, from with players going from sort of second choice down to fifth place in the depth chart, they go and put fifty points in the Ospreys at home, and then fifty points on the Dragons away. Like guys, like teenagers playing in their first and second games, l- legitimately, like Scott Penny, I'm talking about here, legitimately, mm. like f- fifth choice open side in Leinster. And uh, well capable of playing and going, like how how competitive is this league? Yeah, it uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's hard to argue against that. I was trying to remember the guy's name. Actually, you're talking about French rugby. He's a guy called Daniel Herrero. He used to play for Toulon and then coach Toulon. He's an incredible looking guy. He's sort of like if Pat Inglesby was a was a a, a French rugby player. Mm. That's that's Daniel Herrero. And he wrote a book. There used to be 96 teams uh, involved in the bouclier every season. So like some just really small clubs could legitimately win the bouclier in in any given season. Mm. And uh, then you've tales of your man, uh, was it, oh, Bézier. Oh, yeah. Bézier won seven or eight. And yeah. uh, the guy back around, I think, shot himself. Armand back around, yeah. Russian roulette. Uh, and French rugby's traditionally played on a Sunday, so again, it's a traditionally rural game. And it's the, the idea of l'esprit de cloche and the idea of guys working six days a week. And then no one does anything in France, work-wise. Like the shops aren't even open, and th- this has changed a bit in the last decade. On a Sunday, you mean? On a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> On a Sunday, they just sit around eating cheese and smoking and being <laughs> no stereotypes here. Um, and and that that's when rugby is traditionally, and that's that's the heart, that's the the heartland, the south, the mm-hmm. Loire, the southwest uh, of the country. But your man Herrero, like it's 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 printed in French. It's it's a it's a fascinating read. Uh, the bits you can understand, but just how how embedded in the community it is, and how much it captured the imagination. And even Trevor Brennan uh, writes about it and writes about winning the bouclier with and bringing it around to the villages, yeah, around to like you know around Toulouse of where the guys come from and like how much their dads want to see, yeah, like, to have a Le Beef putting it in in uh, blankets in his car boot and bringing it to his dad as. Dad, like this was super rough old Frenchman crying when he saw that his son had won the boot. Like the bouclier is like I think it's I think it's the best trophy in in rugby. Uh, I think it's it has such a long history. It's not much competition. Bledisloe Cup is great. That's it. Bledisloe is a is a great and trophy. The Millennium Hat. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's such a long tradition of playing for that one trophy. Like. It, you know the the courage leagues before the the premiership um before the courage leagues there was no there was no trophy that english clubs played for they just played loads of friendlies against each other play the the cup yeah johnny walker cup <laughs> back when tobacco companies could sponsor a yeah. sports event um but the the bouquet and it still holds like one of the great um and i think it is it's fair to say it's great one of the great things about french rugby in the last 10 years is the fact that cast have won the bouclier twice mm. like cast coming from you know creeping into the, the barrage in sixth place winning a game on the road you know which is fucking impossible in france <laughs> winning a neutral semi-final against some monster team mostly by cheating <laughs> and then when they played montpellier this team like the cast team had no internationals in it apart from 
like they had guys with smatterings of caps and then they had their uh their august lock from uruguay who has 40 uruguayan caps over like 115 years um and they were beating like the, the team that montpellier sent out they had like the first two names in the montpellier team i think the first name on the montpellier no it was the first two had had more caps than the entire cast 23 it was bismarck duplessis but cast can go out and like turn in a performance of absolute ferocity and embarrass Montpellier in front of 80,000 fans, you know, up up in the north of France. Mm. You know, that, that is a fucking great competition. And again, Russ Petty, because we were looking at this beforehand, coincidentally, tweeted uh, on the morning of that final that the Montpellier team had more Springbok caps than the Springbok set, who were playing yeah. Wales, <laughs> like, th- that same day. That's quite incredible, but... Let's use... Uh, this talk of cast uh, as a handy pivot to talk about uh, a curious match that happened on Sunday. Uh, Munster beat the champions of France mm. 30 points to five. And to all intents and purposes, that looks like a great result. I watched the whole match uh, and I was befuddled by um, the quality of Munster's performance. Yeah. You saw the first match. Yeah, first this half, is, you know, I was impressed. on a plane. Well, I was getting towards being on a plane for the second half. So I saw the first half. But you were, you were impressed by the by the second half. Yeah. Um, I am really looking forward. It's not going to be on the same time as the Leinster match next week, unbelievably. Is it? Yeah. Oh. But I think that's going to be an extremely tough match uh, for, for Munster in, uh, in cast. Yeah. Absolutely um, agreed. What were you impressed with from Munster? I thought Munster's handling had improved. I thought that when they played the semi-final of the Pro 14, which was their second biggest match last season after the, the Racing match, but it was it was magnified by two things because it was a shot of redemption, having having not performed to their ability. Um, against Racing, plus it was against their biggest rivals who had already had a successful season. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the Munster tried to put a bit of width in the ball. They tried to give a dangerous back three opportunities, but they didn't have the skill set, to use that phrase. To, they couldn't pass the ball effectively across their team. I thought against Cast, they demonstrated um, an enhanced or an increased ability to pass the ball in contact, a willingness to move the ball away from contact, uh, or sorry, from sort of the breakdown. On occasion, I thought their decision-making was better. I know that Felix Jones and Jerry Flannery had, had both made trips down to New Zealand, had both talked about improving sort of the core and the skill set. I think that it's consistent with the way that Van Grand tried to get them to play. I um, The thing, though, that stood out most about that match was Hanran, who played at 10, who played in a home match when Munster attacked very well and didn't really get any love. And I was thinking, if Carberry had been involved in this performance, it would have been complete justification for how he'd moved. It would have been complete proof that he was maturing as an out-half. And I was there going... I don't get this. I think I think Hanron's got a bit of I think he's got a bit of praise in the, in the aftermath of that. And I hope so. Yeah, he was awarded man of the match on the BT broadcast. All right, okay. I wasn't maybe paying attention to that. I I I was really. I'm still not convinced that the Carberry move has been an un, like an unfettered success. It's still presented as such, and I was always curious what would happen if. And out half in Munster started playing better at ten than Carberry. And there's no there's no shortage of contenders. You know, Munster have this very half back heavy squad. Munster always carry a big squad and they typically have the biggest well, always have the biggest squad of any of the provinces. And at the moment they have ten half backs on on the books in their senior squad. Um Murray, Matheson Williams, Hart, Cronin at number nine, and then Carberry, Hanran, Blayendal, Keatley, and Bill Johnson at number 10. Like, which is, it's outstandingly bad resource management. You don't need to pay all those wages. Mm. You know, you need to, you need to let guys go. 
um, or you need to send them out on loan somewhere. I know that sounds like a bit of a soccer thing to do, but it is what it is. Um, I thought that the first half, which was the only half I saw, as I was saying, I was leaving at halftime, was terribly poor fare. I know that um, Cass have got some criticism in the Irish press for not trying to play that much, but they're the away team. You know, playing in an extremely difficult place to get a result. And like, I wouldn't go down to, if I was Cass, I wouldn't go down to Tom and start trying to throw around. Cass don't throw it around at home. Why would you no. go down to Tom and try and start to throw it around? So, um, it's, it was, it was, it was a game with, with the early kickoff and with those, uh, the bright glaring sunshine, the long shadows and everything that didn't seem like a, it seemed like the sort of game that Munster normally play in the last, in the last round of the Heineken Cup when they're playing a, a beaten docket, mm. and you know it's just a case of can you get the uh, the, the fourth bonus try yeah. bonus to move up the ranks into the top half of the quarterfinal draw. Um, but as you say, it's going to be uh, not that Munster can't do it, but it's going to be a, a hugely more difficult ask in in cast in the uh, Pierre Fab. That's not beyond them, but it, it's a, it's 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 an it's an interesting game. It's a real test. Yeah, a real test. It's a test for anybody. It's a test for any team to go down there. Leinster have gone down there before. Uh, Leinster went down in and again in, in, late in the in the pool stages, and they got a, a twenty twenty draw in um, twenty sixteen seventeen. Um, and you know we've uh, like. Cast always get into the European Cup. Like Munster and Cast have played more than anybody else in in the European Cup. That fixture has has turned up more more often than anybody else. But Leinster and Cast must be must be close. We always seem to get Cast. Yeah. So I thought then as well. It's it's certainly not beyond Munster to win it, and uh, it'll be like they're pretty much untouchable at the top of that group. Mm. Should they win down and Cast, but it's a toughie. And then I thought that Leinster sort of brought the best out of Bath again. Like, there's a lot of matches for Leinster this season like that. I've, I say there's a lot. Like, I mean, sure, they're hockey teams by 50 and 60 points, putting out, like, third-string guys. Mm. Um, but they're, the bigger matches have been very competitive because teams really concentrate going into that match for whatever, like, because they, they, for fear or because they want to topple over... The, the double winning guys, whatever the motivation is, it's not going to be much more complicated than that. And uh, Leinster are rolling with the punches, but they, they're beatable because they're not perfect. And they were beaten by Toulouse. Yeah. Um, what, what is your opinion on the selection of uh, Dan Levy at number eight ahead of... Jack Conan, who's fitting on the bench. I guess they wanted to get to. They wanted to get Vanderfleer and Levy into the same team, playing against um, Low and against uh, Underhill. But then why pick Reese Woodock? I guess he wanted to reward Reese Woodock's form. It, it, it was an odd one. Um, I I thought that Jack Conan had a pretty good tour down in Australia. I thought that Jack Conan had played pretty well in, in big matches. Reese Ruddock played very well against uh, against America, which is which is a different sort of match. The coaches look at different things. Uh, had Conan carried a bit of an injury, it's um oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's it it's hard to know. I it, I think it was worth worth trying, but it didn't pan out. No. Um, it's an interesting thing you know Australia have done it with playing Pocock at 8 not a classic 8 Levy not a classic 8 either uh, and Pocock has performed you know in some games he hasn't had to perform the typical number 8's role he's been able to play his own game uh, Levy didn't perform the number 8's role well we had one of the least effective games I've, I've seen him play in over the last three years for Leinster and Reinforce that maybe, you know, that maybe Jack Conan is a bit, a bit taken for granted sometimes. Mm. Um, I also think that when we're talking about, I'm a, I'm a Reese Ruddock fan. I think he's, you know, a really 
like he's been able to perform at very high levels in in Test rugby, but he had a he didn't have a good game. I thought he was the least effective back row on the pitch there, and it's a curious one now for Leinster. I read this morning that Nick McCarthy, who is due to go to Munster next season and was sort of beginning to lose out in, in some of the Pro 14 selections to Hugh O'Sullivan, uh, has been ruled out for 12 weeks now. Nick McCarthy. Uh, was used in Europe last season as the backup nine to enable Scott Fardy and James Lowe to be on the pitch at the same time. Um, he, not that he ever shone in Europe, but that safety blanket has been taken away. Uh, Fardy was outstandingly good in both the recent Pro 14 games for Leinster, and it's very difficult to... Uh, it should be very difficult to leave him out for the the upcoming game mm. against Bath. I would I would pick Friday at six over Ruddock. Um and that that means either leaving out James Lowe, which is a bad idea, or going with a very, very untried Academy scrum half on the bench to Luke McGrath. Um Lens have never been afraid to give Academy players a a, a trial. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that throws something into the mix is that before Luke McGrath's good cameos in the November series for Ireland, Gibson Park was clearly the better of the two scrum halves for Leinster. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he having, well, he was having his best time for Leinster, full stop. Yeah, point. well, he was one of Leinster's best players in that part of the season. So it's it's a difficult and it's 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 a it's a conundrum which is resolved at the end of this season. Uh, when Gibson Park uh, becomes Irish, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but for the remainder of this season, it's a, it's a it's a tricky one. You know, they need Leinster Leinster's back row for one of the first times in the last since losing to the Scarlets in the in the semi final of the uh, Pro Fourteen two years the ago. Before yeah. Last, yeah. It was the first time their back row have been outperformed. Uh, do you expect a similar, um, <clears throat> a similar level of competition in the back row and the return fixture? I do expect in the a Christmas jumper in the Christmas <laughs> extravaganza. The uh, yeah, the um, not my favorite fixture, um, but also away games in Europe are just tricky. They're always hard-fought games. I was looking back on Leinster's uh, results away in Europe in the 2011-12 season, which was Joe Schmidt's second season in charge. As uh, To that stage, uh, Leinster's most successful season ever. They played 33 games, won 20, uh, 28 of them, drew one, lost four, including a, a last-minute loss in the, in the Pro 12 final. Um, and had some Big results in Europe, but at home, away, they got a 16-all draw against uh, Montpellier in the first game of the pool with a last-minute kick from Sexton from the right. They won in Bath 13-18, and they got a scratchy 23-16 win over Glasgow. Those are the three away fixtures. Now, when 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 they came back to Dublin, Leinster put, like, 22 to 25 points between the sides they were playing so it's a huge swing there's in in that season there was like a, a 20 point swing in the results between home and away fixtures um to suggest that there's a 20 point margin by virtue of being at home is an extrapolation i don't think it's that holds true in all cases but it is a big advantage being at home and so to get a win on the road no matter how you do it is uh, a good achievement um, so we say big fight and cast, a uh, decent win for Leinster. Uh, Ulster to repeat the dose against the Scarlets. Yeah, the Scarlets have nothing to play for. Um, uh, Ulster, Golden Ravenhill, and there they should be confident in the back of what was the best performance, the best Irish provincial performance of the weekend. Just watch this. Great possibility to play there. This shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hands. He just burst through the defence. One last topic before we go. 
you were in France while the and there's a slightly old news, but France got beaten by Fiji uh, in the for the first time in, in France. Yeah, possibly the first time Fiji have ever beaten them. I think and, so. Yeah. Um, the French team, who we kind of thought were going somewhere, maybe aren't going somewhere. Oh, depends which French team show up. <laughs> um, the French reaction to that, uh, both in the newspapers and on television, was uh, was uh, fucking French rugby hitting the absolute ceiling. They went nuts. They thought it was a disgrace. Uh, Fiji are ranked eighth in the world. The Fiji team that played Ireland last November, uh, or two Novembers ago now at this stage, was really good. The best Fiji team I've I've seen uh, in November, um, and full of really outstanding athletes and great rugby players from like in in every in every part of the team. Mm. You know, it's not just Nakarawa, it's Yato, it's Gonova, it's a demolition man. Like, they have just, they have a shitload of really, really talented players and brilliant athletes. The Fijian, the Fijians beat Wales famously in, in 2007, but they also gave the Springboks. Mm. It, was, it was one of the games of the World Cup, and the Springboks, you know, Joanne Smith, Brusso, Joanne Smith in particular, that was superb all the way through. Yeah. Um, was that the quarterfinals? It was in the quarters, yeah. yeah. Didn't they give France a hard go in that? No, that was almost another time. Tonga beat, Tonga beat, no, it was the following World Cup. Yeah. Anyway, Fiji. That game was a blinder until the Springboks basically went off, kicked the ball off the pitch all the time. And just mauled we, it. We can win on their line out and on ours. We had the, yeah. the best line out ever in pro rugby. And we'll just, we'll just, we'll just wreck their line out, Paul. And whenever we get the line out, we'll just maul it forever. Uh, but like that Fiji team was, was, uh, it was superb. And it was, it was, it was, it was a superb game. Um, so they're in, they're in with Australia, they're in with Wales, uh, in the World Cup. And they're the team to watch. They are, yeah. Who did the French, uh, tend to blame? Uh, in, the, in the wake of that defeat, mostly it was a an overall blaming. <laughs> it was everything that's wrong with France. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't understand everything by by, Macron, uh, by any means. Macron, <laughs> get any Macron got in here, yeah. but it was. Uh, I saw I saw uh, a program which went on for an hour. Yannick Nyanga was was the most recent ex player. Dennis Charvet had been there. Um, William Servat was there and. Like it, it, it either degenerated or accelerated into basically five lads talking over each other all the time and waving their arms around in classic French manner. They were really, really upset about it. Um, and, and when Jacques Brunel, I don't know what the story was with Jacques Brunel. He wasn't wearing a coat or anything when he was interviewed. He was wearing a V-neck and a shirt with no tie. And it looked like they were just interviewing a geography teacher afterwards. <laughs> and he was like, oh, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Oh, classic geography teacher style. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, let's just say, thank God Fiji aren't the surprise package in our group and we've got the yeah. rudderless, seemingly rudderless Samoa, not that I've seen any of their games. Yeah, well, no doubt, they'll, no doubt they'll injure the shit out of us. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you bring Rosper into a World Cup. <laughs> the crowd didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs>